0: My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form.
1: We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done, and here we are now.
0: Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely.
1: Never before in American history,
0: Has there been an uprising like this?
1: Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters.
0: The 21st century is going to be the American century because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Protesters are marching across America after a leaked document suggested that Supreme Court judges are on the verge of reversing the constitutional right to an abortion for the first time in half a century. Marion McCown joins me, as always, to talk about everything that's happened in America this week. And while you and others have been predicting this for months, Marion, it still came as a shock. So, so did the leak. I mean, let's start with the leak. Leaks like this don't happen, do they?
1: This has never happened in the, let's see, 233, 234 year history of the Supreme Court. There has never been a leaked judgment before. And, you know, of course, people are touching their pearls and touching their horsehair wigs or whatever else. But my theory about this is that, You know, leaks are what happened to politicians. You know, the leak is a political invention, and because the Supreme Court has become so nakedly politicised in the past five years in particular, courtesy in no small measure of Donald Trump and and the Republicans and Mitch McConnell, the Supreme Court is now viewed in America effectively as a super-Senate, that it doesn't interpret the law, it makes policy. Mm. And it did so with Roe v. Wade and overturned a ruling that stood in place for 50 years. Now, I trained as a lawyer and I briefly worked as a barrister and the fundamental rule that any first-year law student knows is stare decisis, which means stick to what has been decided. That if you have a court, a a Supreme Court, that chops and changes every couple of years, there's no certainty in the law. People can't rely on it, especially to uphold their civil rights, especially things like gay rights, abortion, you know, guaranteed protection against racial discrimination, all those things. So you have to have certainty in the court. And there was no challenge. There was no public clamour. Normally, something will only be revisited and the guidelines are if something is proven that was assumed is proven to be factually completely different. And that throws new light. So a really crude example. And, you know, I hesitate to even use this, but let's just say it was discovered that an abortion meant that you were extremely, li- if you, a woman who had an abortion was, you know, extremely likely to develop a form of cancer as a result. You know, that, that, that there was something like that that showed that, in fact, far from saving the lives of women who have abortions because they believe it could damage their health, that abortions, In fact, damage your health far more. You know that that was Hmm. something you would have to have something in that scale to warrant the Supreme Court to agree to revisit the issue. Because normally, once a decision is made, and it was upheld as well in 1989 and in 1993, definitively. In the Casey versus Planned Parenthood case. Uh, and so there was no question that this was settled law. So basically, you had a bunch of judges making it a, a political decision that they would overturn this because of their own personal beliefs and their own belief that abortion is wrong. And they not, it, it hasn't just happened in this case. I could cite you a dozen cases in the last five years where the only thing that was reflected was the Supreme Court judges' political preferences and the preferences of the person, the president who appointed them. And when you do this, Americans start, you know, the the Supreme Court of all the American institutions, I mean, you know, the americans respect for for congress and the senate is, is practically on the floor with with good reason you know it's it's in the low 30s at best and you know the the white house depends the approval rating for the president can go anywhere between as we saw with trump you know 37 38 and indeed biden came close to that in the last couple of weeks as well and up to you know for a good week for a president would have been like uh, the high 60s or even even reaching 60 would be a good week for biden or trump because neither of reached that so far but the supreme court was always you know more than two-thirds of americans always approved of the supreme court until about four years ago and what happened then was it started with merrick garland when in 2016 very briefly barack obama nominated merrick garland who's now the attorney general he's so mild-mannered and moderate and and you know Democrats would say, limp-wristed and lily-livered. But he he was somebody who was guaranteed not to rock the boat. He'd be a centrist moderate. And the Republicans back then, that by Mitch McConnell, wouldn't even give him a meeting. Instead, they held the seat empty for almost a full year, saying the people could decide in the November 2016 elections. And at that stage, it was a long shot that they would win. But they felt that 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 was their only chance at, at influencing the Supreme Court. and then. We saw in 2020, fast forward to October 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg suddenly died three weeks before the 2020 election. And Mitch McConnell, who had refused to allow the seat to be filled a year before the 2016 election almost, suddenly rushes through. They literally rammed through Amy Coney Barrett in the literally the last days of the Trump presidency. Now, there were polls taken as to the, the faith in the Supreme Court after that, and it had dropped from 68% or thereabouts right down to 40%. And that showed that a huge number of Americans who previously trusted the court to be impartial and to enforce the law as it stood. Mm. And to interpret, we're now just another political layer, that they were, as I said, a super Senate. And I've heard it said in Washington so, ma- so many times that they're just politicians in robes. And I think that this decision really supports that claim and that criticism that they really are.
0: Known, politicians in politicians are known for lying. And uh, that's really at the heart of this too, yeah, because absolutely. they misled people. During those hearings, those confirmation hearings that we talked about uh, weeks ago or like, what's the point of this? What's going on here? Yeah. It was a suss out. That's what we eventually settled on, uh, public sussing out, and they misled those people on, on those correct yep.
1: I mean, I, I would go further, uh, firstly on that, but on other issues. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh's testimony about Christine Blasey for the woman who claimed that he sexually assaulted, that he attempted to rape her as a teenager, and the, the claims of, of several other people about him being a violent, belligerent drunk, he denied all of that under oath. I would say that the evidence overwhelmingly cast the veracity at at, at best of his denials into doubt. I would say he lied to get the job, absolutely, and uh, that the evidence indicates that very strongly. And I would say also that, yes, Susan Collins claimed that she was misled. Now, you know, Susan Collins, who is a Republican senator, is one of these classic sit-on-the-fence senators. You know, Maine is a an independent state. It's got Republicans, slightly more Republicans than Democrats, but more independents, and it prides itself on its independence. But, you know, her electorate in Maine, the women in Maine, are pro choice. They're they're pro-choice. And and she claimed that, you know, in her private meetings with Kavanaugh that he had indicated that he wouldn't seek to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now she was in she was pressured enormously not to vote for Kavanaugh because it was felt that he was unfit for the job, that the allegations against him were deeply disturbing, and that he was absolutely and you know evangelically pro-life. She decided to vote for him anyway. And now I think she's afraid of the backlash from voters in Maine where she's a centre. so she's saying oh I was misled look it, you didn't have to be able to mm. read the TV's to see where Brett Kavanaugh was going and where he would go on this likewise Amy Coney Barrett she came in, you know these were judges who came in the litmus test that was applied to them was that they would overturn mm-hmm. Roe yeah. rate, that they were what they would call pro-life and that was why they were selected the Heritage Foundation which is the conservative group that lobbies and, and basically decides what judges a uh, Republican president will appoint they basically give him a shortlist and they say it can be one two three or four and frankly we prefer one and the, the um, Republican presidents never never ignore the wishes of the Heritage Foundation
0: well, which is a lobbying group so that there's a couple of things that there's a few things we need to sift through here because there are This is going to change things. This is going to change a lot of things in terms of the freedoms that Americans enjoy. But also it could change things in the lead up to these November elections that we've talked about time and time again. Now, yeah. I heard your discussion with uh, the always eloquent Cal Thomas on uh, the uh, last yes. word. And, you know, he was kind of making the case that there is a mole in there uh, who is who's doing this to try and yep. get the to rile yep. the Democrat base. And you made the point that the scrolling news feed of today there could just as easily be the argument that they're letting people get their outrage out now so that by the time those elections arrive, it'll be a collective shrug and what are you going to do? The world's crazy.
1: And you know what? The clearest precedent for that is January 6th. You know, in the we'll say two months after the the January 6th insurrection, where you had people killed, where you had 150 police officers injured, where you had people running through the Capitol, vandalising the Capitol, smearing excrement on the walls of the Capitol building. You had all of these things happening. And the outrage initially was deafening. Everybody was joined together in shock and outrage about this. Within two months, Mitch McConnell had gone from excoriating Trump to the other side. Uh, Kevin McCarthy had gone and we've seen all the leaks about him recently had gone from also behind the scenes excoriating Trump to running on down to Mar-a-Lago to getting on bended knee practically to beg Trump's forgiveness. Uh, and and they've is, is there a
0: difference though, Marion, in that no. this is no. a historical event that you're referring to and this is something that is ongoing and future driven that this is the 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 road ahead as much as the road before.
1: No, because i I think, and i I do take your point, but I think that what the Republicans and this is why I believe it may have been a republican leak. look, put it this way if they don 't find a leak, it's a republican mm-hmm. if they don't find the leaker, you'll know it's a republican but and i I may of course be proven wrong, but to me we we saw like within three months, all the outrage practically had had evaporated over January 6th because the public will only stay angry about any one thing for so long. And that's about the timeline. Think back about the savage murder of George Floyd, you know, the torture of him to death in broad daylight. That went on for three or four months as well. And then that evaporated too. But again, it is in the
0: past, though. It is a thing that took place and obviously the dust settles. But when you see these women marching and speaking uh, and the anger that it elicits about, you know, day to day rights. And when President Biden points out that this is going to have wide ranging impacts on other things, such as states being able to decide things like, no, there's no more single sex marriage here. Don't you see that this anger may actually work the other way, Marian? that the more it dawns on people, what this means, the angrier they may become.
1: Well, I think that, again, I, and I, I, you're absolutely right that this is forward driven. But if you look at the past, if you look at for the past 10 years, it, Democrats have been warned repeatedly, repeatedly, that if the Supreme Court becomes a, mm-hmm. you know, dominated by conservative right wings, that they will lose the right to abortion; that, that other rights will be trampled as well. Civil rights, gay rights, the right to gay marriage, the right to all manner of things. Democrats have never been energized. And I say this having covered it for 20 years. They have never been energized to defend those rights in the same way that Republicans have to dismantle them. Mm-hmm.
0: Never. So never. Could we, So you, you the argument Supreme is: is Gordon. it a tipping point? Is this is this the tipping point, though? Roe v. Wade is just something that got used to get thrown out in in debates back when I was at university, and you just never saw the day arriving. Even though you you, you basically you said it when Hillary <laughs>
1: did. people when, did. Yeah. yeah,
0: when Hillary and lost, you you said it that night.
1: You know, I really think that. Like any journalist, the the, the mantra is look at the record, look at the record, look at the record. If, you know, past performance, past behaviour is the best indicator of future performance. Democrats, even after, you know, the Supreme Court, when, when it denied Al Gore... The, the right when it trampled the states, the Florida state's right to have a recount, to basically install George W. Bush by ju- judicial fiat in the White House, that showed Democrats then. Look, this is what a Republican-controlled court will do. This mm. is what a conservative court—they don't really care about. They, you know, they care about enforcing Republican policy at at every level. And Democrats should have learned a lesson way back then. They never learned it. And as I said, I've seen this uh, talking to voters thousands of Republicans, thousands of Democrats. You mentioned the Supreme Court to Republicans. In fact, you don't even have to to any Republican voter. They will mention it to you first that no matter what Trump does, no matter how like Hitler he is, which is what one person did say to me, that he will get the Conservatives on the Supreme Court and that that's, you know, and that was Mitch McConnell's legacy as well. Mitch McConnell held his nose for four years and he told everyone, look, the big prize is not the White House. The big prize is the Supreme Court. Basically, we suffer Trump. We put up at his crap. And in exchange, he appoints exactly the judges that we want. And they'll be there for... 15, 25 years, possibly 30, 40 years indeed, whereas a president is only there for four years. And McConnell staked his legacy on that, that he would get Roe v. Wade overturned. And that was what they were getting so much funding for. And as But Democrats knew all this. This was no secret. They have never come out. I have yet to meet a Democrat who told me they were motivated to vote by by a determination to protect the supreme court from you know from being politicized to the extent that it now has been they just aren't animated by it so will they be in november honestly jarlath i i don't know i'll be surprised if they are uh,
0: uh, well joe biden's counting on it um, i wanted to ask the question yeah, well, though <laughs> could, um, yeah. what what would have happened if the leak hadn't come out would they've just carried on with this process
1: well, I think that it, had the leak not come out, the decision which was expected in late June or our the first week in July at the very latest would have come out then. And as I said, I think that, that the leaking may have been strategic, that it may have been to let the head of steam that was inevitably going to build up, to let it evaporate. I mean, they've put up the same, the January 6th guardrails all around the Supreme Court. Now you've got these 10 foot high um, unscalable fences all around the Supreme Court today. The same as you had after January 6th. You know, the Supreme Court is meant to be an apolitical institution. And as I've said, I blame the leak. I blame the whole thing on the fact that the Supreme Court has deliberately and consciously become so political. And I do blame the 6-3 majority for that. I also think that John Roberts has been a very weak chief justice. He was a Bush, George W. Bush Republican appointee. He's a fundamentally decent man. He is a deep conservative. And I think that under him, the court's reputation has been absolutely trashed. Um, several of the judges, and I know this because I, I, I did a lot of research into the Supreme Court for a business post article I wrote about four or five months ago, and it was fascinating to me that, that the Republicans hold Roberts in disdain. They, they think that he's weak, they think that he's ineffectual, and Neil Gorsuch thinks that he's far smarter than Roberts and has made that clear. So does Samuel Alito, who penned this opinion. Uh, he and Clarence Thomas have never gotten on So Roberts, even though he's conservative, is despised by the conservatives on the bench. And, you know, The personal acrimony on the bench, where it was a matter of pride that they would be civil to each other, and one instance to me showed the the depth of it. Again, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who was the Obama appointee, she's a woman judge, a Hispanic woman judge, the first you know Hispanic Supreme Court justice on the bench. Well, she has diabetes and another a, a number of other ailments, and she's 67 years of age. And she had asked when the court re met in in you know in person late last year, if all of the judges would wear masks, because she felt she couldn't sit on the bench and she couldn't meet in conference or in the common areas in the court if they didn't wear masks. And John Roberts asked them all to respect this and respect her illnesses. And Gorsuch, who sat beside her on the bench, so he would be right next to her, 18 inches distance, refused. So she was unable to come to the Supreme Court in person because he refused to wear a mask. That's the level of, as I say, she's uh, would be regarded as a liberal justice. He's a deeply conservative justice. But that level of pettiness and acrimony when that exists on the bench. I mean, that's what you see in the Senate. Mm. You know, it, it, it was unheard of previously that judges would behave like that. And as I say, I do blame Roberts in a way for not being a lot tougher as a Chief Justice. Now, his powers are limited. He can't sack them. He can't send to them, but you can bring them together and you can insist on certain standards. And I I do believe that. But look back to to, um, Roe v. Wade. This is 13 states already have drafted what they call trigger laws, which means that the day this judgment is handed out, which we still expect will be late June or, or early July, that they have laws already on the books that will go into effect banning all abortions, banning all abortions. I
0: mean... Yeah. We, we, we'll definitely have to come back to it, Marion, because yeah. there's so much more uh, to come out yet on this. Yeah. And interestingly, thirteen states also had the uh, elections this week. Uh, we've we've spoken a lot about this uh, book, "Hillbilly Elegy," uh, yeah. by J.D. Vance. But there's before we get to those elections, I do want to talk about another book very briefly. Uh, I mean, we've spoken about so many Trump books that oh, contend there, so to many. reveal the truth <laughs> yes. about the Trump yes. presidency. Well, former Defence Secretary Mark S. Burris is the next one to hit the shelves. It claims that the then President Donald Trump raised the idea of shooting protesters who took to the streets around the White House after the killing of George Floyd in 2020. Surprise, surprise. I feel like, Marion, is this news? Did, did we not have similar accounts of this in the Michael Bender book? I mean, what's... What's the difference here and why should we be paying attention to this?
1: I think the difference here is two things. First, um, Mark Esper, who was known as Jesper in in back when he was Trump's defense secretary because he was so eager to please Trump and do his bidding. Uh, this book is written by Mark Esper. So you can have journalists with impeccable sources who will make these claims, but they can always be denied. They can always be denied. You know, And say people will say, well, I never spoke to him or he misinterpreted me or she, you know, twisted mm. my words. But this is the defense secretary himself who Trump said this to directly. There's no hearsay. There's no nothing. He is claiming that Trump said this to his person, to his face, you know, why can't we just shoot them in the legs? So basically, you know, if you look at the context of that now, I was in Washington around then. These were peaceful protesters. Now, the I, the day that Trump came out with the Bible, and I think everybody remembers that with Mark Milley on one side and Mark Esper on the other, and Ivanka slinking along behind him with Jared, you know, and and you know all the people around them, and and Bill Barr, the Attorney General, the day he came out and stood by the church and held up the Bible in upside down, incidentally, you know, while they all gathered around. Yeah. It was such a sobering day for America. But just before that, the peaceful protesters, and they had been peaceful, were cleared by police on horseback using tear gas and using pepper spray. Yeah. we remember it well, yeah. yeah. And that was just so Trump could walk across the road and, and have basically his photo have his photo up. up surrounded by his henchmen. As a, And now these henchmen then very quickly afterwards chiefly mark milley who to appear in military fatigues as the most senior military officer to to do that i mean this is the stuff you see in the philippines you mm. know or in argentina or in russia yeah. you know and and he very quickly realized the folly of his way now to be fair to him he did apologize and he did make a speech at west point where he apologized for having done it and he then appeared in every single book that came out about that saying oh my god how awful it was and I did this and I tried to do this and I tried to prevent that. And so these books are all to me an exercise in reputation laundering. Yes. Because all of these people, you know, as I said, Millie, who appears as the main source for Bob Woodward's book, for about four or five other books that appeared, Phil um goodness two excellent reporters with the Washington Post. No, not Philip Bump, another Philip whose name, and I know him, his name has just gone out of my mind, but two, they wrote. So Millie became the chief source trying to explain, oh, how difficult it was, you know, working for Trump and how he did his best. And but for him, you know, we'd all be dead by now or we'd be nuked or whatever. So again, this book, was rep you know all those books were the sole purpose to me seemed to be that they were they were done to rehabilitate Millie to launder his reputation. I think those journalists all were used to a greater or lesser degree, and maybe that was the price they were willing to pay to get the first hand accounts and to be able to quote them on the record and then of course, you had bill barr's big self exculpatory you know tome in, in which he basically was all about just you know laundering his really Dirty reputation. I'm not sure what laundry powder you would need to clean that reputation up. But and and now you have Mark Esper. The, you know the the third. And of course there are many others. Kellyanne Conway has a memoir coming out soon, which she says is, you know, going to be about the Trump White House, but also about her struggle as you know the the wife of an a, 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 a ever Trumper, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then. Hold the front page. Jared Kushner has a book coming out, is basically it, ex- it, explaining to everyone in August explaining how brilliant he was. Yeah, how I, d- he was I as a Very advisor. much doubt that that's yep. going
0: to be. Uh, wait till I tell you how hard I tried to stop oh, this man. Oh, the suspense! Uh, the suspense yeah, is it's killing it's me. Yeah, it's probably more likely to contain different ab workouts. <laughs> and, uh, I think and self-care, and
1: slim suit recommendations. But I, no, that book to me is much more likely to say, Middle East investors. Come and get me. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here. I'm wide open for business because it? I think it's going to extol all his his successes as a brilliant businessman. I think that's the, yeah. the main thrust of that book from what I can gather.
0: So much of what's come out in the last couple of weeks have been about, you know, leaked phone calls, uh, different, more and more fuel for the fire that the ends justified the means, as you said, that this was yeah. a, uh, a president, a one term president, who you had to tell him what he needed to hear so that you could get out the door and get to what you were doing next. Jared Kushner is the poster boy for that in many ways. But where where does J.D. Vance fit into this? Because that, this is someone who was a critic of Donald Trump initially and now is his endorsed candidate. And can you tell me why is it so important that we talk about Ohio?
1: OK, now, Ohio Historically and always, just to put it in context, Ohio is and always has been a state that Republicans, uh, it's always said that the road to the White House for a Republican goes through Ohio. And also for Democrats, to a lesser degree, Ohio at the moment has one very popular Democratic governor, Sherrod Brown, I beg your pardon, Democratic senator Sherrod Brown. And it, it also has... Uh, You know, Rob Portman, who is leaving, he claims he's leaving politics because he's kind of so disgusted by how political it has become and how nasty and how partisan, as though he had no hand to play in that in the Senate when he did indeed. And he was another of these guys who voted against Trump's impeachment, but afterwards said... Well, you know, I voted against his impeachment, but I really don't approve of the way he behaves. You know that kind of mealy-mouthed nonsense. Anyway, he decided to quit, as did Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania. Again, you know, senators who would have been regarded ten years ago as very conservative Republican senators, but because the party has lurched so far to the right, they're now seen as the outliers, as the, you know, as, as the the leftists in, in the in the Republican Party. So they, I think, they both feared they wouldn't be reelected, even though um, there is a safe Republican seat in Ohio. But Ohio is a powerful state. It has a moderate governor, Mike DeWine, who was very effective on COVID and has been on other things as well, but is largely Republican as well. So you have um, J.D. Vance, who, you know, th- this is a guy who, who wrote a book that became an instant bestseller and he became the champion of the li- liberal media darlings and, and and they all, the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC, they all used to, to explain to them, you know, about poverty in, in um, Republican areas in America, poverty in rural America, in the Appalachian districts, etc. And why these people felt so abandoned by the Democrats. And, you know, he he became somebody who was all over t v back in twenty sixteen, and as part of that, and as part I suppose of the Faust impact to get on the you know in New York Times and c n n and what have you, he clearly reckoned it seems to me that he had to say. I'm a never-Trumper. I think Donald Trump is, it could be America's Hitler, but yet, you know, we, you need to understand why people are voting for him. So, had he said, you know, well, actually, basically, I hold all the same views as it now seems he does that, that Trump holds, and then oh, some. so. So,
0: you think he pulled the wool?
1: I do. I think he pulled the wool because, you know, it's only five years ago. He's a young guy. I think, well, put it this way, one way or the other, either he pulled the wool to sell his book and to make a fortune from the book, which was also made into a movie starring Glenn Close and Amy Adams mm. and a whole bunch of Hollywood A-listers. Now, it was panned, admittedly, but yeah, he, he did really well. It's <laughs> dreadful stuff. It won't be the... The, the good, the the best thing of the week ever. It'll never make the
0: highlights <sighs> of the week. This it's on Netflix <laughs> but, if people want to have a look but, for it. It's, yeah. it's truly bad. But this guy's got quite a bit of a history. He's, you know, he he was in Iraq uh, himself. Yep. He, you know, he, he's got a bit of, like, obviously there's the funding of his campaign is the, is yeah, the big a, headline a big at the moment. Well. Yeah. But you reckon there wasn't a pivot here. This was just what he thought all along.
1: Well, you know, I, I am skeptical because he literally went, and I remember watching a Charlie Rose interview with him where he said, I'm a never Trump guy. This was in um, as I say, 2016, says he never liked him, said a whole bunch of things about how appalling his character was, and he the reason he won the Republican primary really is because Trump endorsed him. Now either after he said all that, he decided in the interim this. OK, just his backstory for 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 the gang here. He grew up in a very poor, dysfunctional family. His mother was a nurse who became a drug addict and, uh, you know, a father that he never knew. And he was largely raised by a grandmother who he claimed was violent to his mother when she was a child and was violent and was really a difficult character, but she was very protective of him and clearly a very bright young guy between one thing and another. He went to Iraq, he went on to college and he then graduated from Yale. Now, that is, you have to have smarts Mm. to do that, you know, to, to make that transition from real chronic underprivileged to to become the Yale graduate and he went on to become a venture capitalist he worked with Peter Thiel and they worked together on various ventures and then he went off and he wrote his book and he became this big tv media personality and i think then has a little bit like trump he got a taste of the spotlight and he decided he'd like to have the money And the spotlight, because, you know, all that acclaim and fame and, you know, movies made of the book, albeit terrible movies, it's it's probably all quite attractive if you've got a big ego. And of course, where do you go from then, like Trump, except to politics, to the bigger stage? And so in order to make the leap, the transition, um, and to get the the votes in Ohio and to beat out career politicians in Ohio like Joe Mandel and, and the, the, uh, the other candidates, you have to bring something extra to the table. You've got to get the MAGA vote. So he had Donald Trump Jr. up there with him. Now, I've said this to you before, Giles, a few times. There are pockets of America that I've been to where... Trump the father is only trotting after Trump Junior when it comes to firing up the crowds and the passion and the worshipping that they show for him. Because he comes off as being even more right wing, more unhinged, much more of a white nationalist stroke white supremacist than Donald Trump. His father did, because you sometimes get the sense still with Trump that it was all political opportunism, that he could have just gone the other way. There was a time when he was totally in favour of abortion. If if it did, um, you know, if it, if it got him more votes, and so now he's no longer in favour of that because he decided that it would beho- it would work better for him to go with the far right and to go with with that the evangelicals etc. That he could get votes there. So anyway, along so you have Vance. I, I imagine looking at this and making the calculation where either initially he probably secretly admired Trump and then, you know, he, he, it was safe to bring out those colours and to wave that flag uh, when he was trying to get elected, or that, if you take my word, he did dislike Trump. Trump hasn't changed in the meantime. So uh, what he's changed, he's had a Damascus Road to Damascus conversion because his positions now are so extreme compared to what he was spouting on uh, TV when he was being interviewed, as I say, as the sort of the the rural Republican whisperer as the person who could who could decode and decipher what rural Republicans were thinking or what former Democrats were thinking. So I, I think that that um Trump initially wasn't going to endorse him because he said he, he had said horrible things about him and then he went and he grovelled and grovelled and groveled to Trump shamelessly, said that he was completely wrong about Trump. He'd got it wrong. And all that he, along. Was the he was the
0: greatest ever. president
1: since Lincoln practically. <laughs> yeah. And and then he got the endorsement he had done Donald Trump Jr. on stage, like literally cheerleading him and, and championing him. And between the jigs and the reels, Trump only endorsed him about three weeks ago. At that stage, he was down to he was running at six percent in the polls in as recently as February, March. And Trump came along. And it's not just Trump. He had, as I said, done his vault fast, his road to Damascus conversion, if you believe that he genuinely you know, changed his mind. And suddenly the MAGA bros started hanging out with him. And then Trump came along, endorsed him, appeared at a rally with him. Peter Thiel, who had already given him $10 million last year, Because they want this sort of new conservative movement, which is really sort of a a populist, but very anti-democratic movement. And uh, so Peter Thiel had given. And then after Trump endorsed him, Peter Thiel immediately gave him another three million and he raised another one point five million in small donations.
0: Well, we we all need a Peter Thiel in our lives, really, just to
1: to, to go (laughs) just
0: somebody to just go, here's here's three million quid. Go on, just do what you want to do with that. That's not how Irishman Abroad is funded. It's funded through your patronage. All of you guys that (laughs) come over for the better. Yeah. Thank God we have you guys. The people that love this show and enjoy listening to Marion every Friday. Uh, get a double sized episode. We continue the conversation a further 30 minutes over there every single week on Patreon.com forward slash Abroad. I really want to get more into J.D. Vance and how the hell he won this thing. We also have right. mailbag questions from you guys that you submit your questions. We'll take a look at Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's case, because the question that needs to be asked here is, why is this so fascinating? Why has this captured the imagination of so many? And finally, we'll uh, We'll take a look at Puerto Rico. I think uh, there's a little curveball for you. So come over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad to hear the rest. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot
1: of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You
0: encourage espionage against our people. You condemn...